Lord, we thank you that we're able to sing your word. We thank you for the book of songs that you have given to us, that book of prayers. We thank you that we can speak of the conflicting emotions that we feel because your word gives us the words to say and expresses what we feel. We thank you for your goodness to us here as a fellowship in so many ways. Thank you for Alistair and Rosemary being back with us. Pray your blessing upon them and upon their family. We thank you, uh, our God, for uh, answered prayers regards Samuel and pray for him and uh, his family in hospital in Edinburgh. We thank you for uh, Glenn being with us and we pray that as he continues to teach us from your word, we uh, bless you, O Lord, that there is no book that better explains what we are as human beings and who you are than your word. And we bless you that we have that and each of us from the youngest to the oldest can be taught from it. Be with us now in, the, in your name. Amen. Uh, just to let you know, I was praying for Samuel and he has had his operation in Edinburgh. He, he is doing very well and Owen and Natalie are uh, very grateful for the support and prayers. Glenn, where's Glenn? Come on up. And for those who are coming in, there are seats, round tables and things like that. You can sit at the front as well, that is allowed. Let's read uh, together from Matthew chapter 19, shall we? Identity and our struggle with sex. Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, well, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, better not to marry. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, 
but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way, others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Well, big topic tonight, and I'm conscious that we'll have come with lots of questions, and uh, almost inevitably we're going to be disappointed that they're not properly answered. What, what I've got with these slides is uh, what they've already been posted again, and uh, there is a list of resources at the end, um, and so I, I'll be pointing you to some of those resources rather than trying to answer all of the issues raised ourselves. I think one of the problems that besets us as we grapple with our culture in this area is that we tend to get drawn onto the hot-button issues right away, stuff, we're, stuff we, we have difficulties with, transgender, same-sex attraction, so on. Um, and we get drawn into those particular issues rather than look at the big picture uh, that lies behind them. And that's what I want to spend most of our time on today, looking at the big picture. And I know you really want to talk about the hot button stuff. Um, but my contention is, and I hope to be able to convince you of this as it goes on, unless we've got the big picture, then the hot button issues don't make sense. And we just end up looking as if we're against stuff in our culture, rather than conveying what, what we're for. That's the big challenge to us. So that's where we're heading, but I'm going to try and stop to allow a bit more time this time for some discussion together. And please then bring up one or two of the hot-button issues and we'll, we'll try to cover them, at least point the direction. Well, we've started by noticing our cultures. Let's just recap where we've got to. We started by noticing our culture's obsession with identity, didn't we, last night? We agreed we'd understand identity as being the answer we give to the question, who am I? The story we tell ourselves about ourselves. We've seen how hard it is to identify the plot line of that story. Instinctively, um, we, we, we are drawn to our culture's answers there. I, the plot line in terms of your sexuality, your gender, your job, your nationality. You, you pin the story on some overarching theme that's important to you. And we've encountered the blessing of, of laying that opportunity aside and embracing the possibility of being named by God and restored by the gospel, so the gospel and God's design for us becomes the plot line of our lives. And then finally, we've tried to notice the three hallmarks of our identity in Christ. If I can just get this one going. It's a given. It's not something that's constructed ourselves. It's purposeful. It's not an existence. It's a calling, it's purposeful, and it's transforming. In the end, we are called into the formation, the reformation, the reformation of our hearts in line with this calling, our identity in Christ. 
And then finally, we had to acknowledge that this work of transformation doesn't happen overnight. We struggle. We're bruised. The Lord knows we're made of dust. We're wounded deeply. And we need to bear with one another as he bears with us as his children with compassion as we struggle on this journey of reformation of the heart together. Shame, we remember this morning, has, has left deep scars and fissures in many hearts. And I know one or two will feel the scars and the fissure quite hard. And the shame of sprin, sin spread out, creating insecurity and eating away at confidence and perpetuating shame in broken families and relationships. And so we, we wanted to acknowledge that this is a journey, but it's one that we're going to commit to in the name of Christ, because that's the one in whose name we stand and whose name we bear. Well, this area of shame, of course, is felt most keenly in the area, perhaps, of our sexuality, isn't it? In so much Christian culture, it's the area of our lives where shame still has a foothold, where the medicine of the gospel, if you listen to some churches and Christian speakers, doesn't really seem to apply. Um, And... I think it's arguable that the church has perhaps done as much as any other to perpetuate and institutionalize this feeling of shame about our being made sexual in the image of God. So for this third session, I want to get us started thinking about sexual shame, big subject. Um, and um, let's, let's see how we, how we can get started, sexual shame. Well, does anybody recognize this film? What is it? Shout it out. It's not quiet, but it could be. But it's not quiet. Yes, the Magdalene Sisters, an Oscar-nominated film set in Ireland in the 1960s. Um, The hit movie, The Magdalene Sisters, follows the fortunes of four young women trapped under a brutal regime of po-faced Irish nuns running one of Ireland's infamous Magdalene laundry asylums. And named after a repentant prostitute, hundreds of these asylums operated across Europe, Ireland, North America. Hundreds of them, for the best part, of 200 years. Today we'd, we'd call these fallen women who were put away into these uh, laundries to work, um, we call them single mums today. And yet as recently as the 1960s when this film was shot, that's the era it depicts, the shame of being a single mum of their condition would keep these women out of sight working in these laundries sometimes for years on end. Some children were forcibly put up for adoption. Now, of course, this is an extreme case, but it does nevertheless illustrate something of the cultural scaffolding of shame around immorality and divorce 
that remained firmly in place for the best part of the first part of last century. Um, I was a child of that era, the 50s. Nobody talked about sex. I remember um, uh, hearing the word pregnant when I was nine about and, and, and sensing that this was a kind of a naughty word. I asked my grandmother, I said, what does, gra- what does pregnant mean, uh, Granny? And she told me she didn't know. <laughs> I remember my first introduction to the idea of sex that, that my mother gave me, and it was something dirty. That's what I came away with, it was dirty. We talked about a divorced woman down the road and we, everyone lowered their voice. And she divorced, I noticed. And, um, and of course, we'd like to think that all that's changed now. Um, but if I were to say, who here was brought up in a Christian home, a Christian setting, in which you learned about the essential goodness of your erotic longings... Who would say yes? I'm not asking you to do it. (laughs) Shame. Shame around sex. Why is it? You know, if a Martian were to land on this planet among us and observe us for just a little while, he'd be totally perplexed, wouldn't he? He'd say, well, hang on a minute, you... um, You walk out of this church and sexually charged images dance around you everywhere. On your television, on the hoardings, on the adverts, they're everywhere. And with my special equipment, I can see inside your head and I see how many times a day you think about sex. And you have that sense of pull, that tug towards somebody who's attractive and you notice them for a little longer than maybe you should the pull of attraction. And this Martian sees what a big deal sex is in our lives. And he says, goodness me, you, you, you know, sex draws you into a relationship with a person that you are going to spend the rest of your life with and sleep in the same bed with. And yet when you get together, you barely talk about it. And yet it wrecks the lives of so many of your pastors who junk their families and their careers for an affair with their secretary, such as the power of this thing, sex. You never talk about it. Why is that, he says. Don't get it. And sex seems to be the heartbeat of being human, but you never talk about it. Now, I'm you know, exaggerating. I'm, I'm sure it's a hot topic here. I don't know. But why? It's an interesting question. Why, why do we struggle so much to talk about this topic? And that's the question. Well, we're being forced to talk about it, aren't we? Um, and I'll tell you why we're forced to talk about this now. Because as the events of that movie were taking place in the 1960s, the West was on the threshold of a mighty cultural and social upheaval that would see every one of those asylums 
close down within 30 years. It would close them down. A mighty sexual revolution that was about to unfold with such speed and intensity that just half a century later, the cultural landscape that you and I inhabit is completely different to how it was 50 years ago. Today, fallen mums put in these places, today, nearly as many births take place outside of wedlock as take place inside wedlock. In socially deprived areas among the poor, especially amongst the poor, it's as high as two-thirds fatherless wastelands. And marriage itself, once again, especially among the poor, all the upper classes still, they see what the goods of marriage, but amongst the poor, marriage has entered a deep and prolonged recession. People of the same sex can get married, and anybody, anyway, nobody quite sure what sex is now, are we? In the space of just a few years across much of the West, it's remarkable, centuries-old convictions rooted in the biblical moral code have effectively collapsed. And most people today, the reality that you have to face and I have to face is that most people out there today would say, good riddance. Meanwhile, we seem to be hoping in the church, if we look at our leaders who look like rabbits caught in the, in the headlights sometimes on this, uh, we seem to be hoping that this whole business will somehow go away. But it won't. It just keeps on coming, doesn't it? Like King Canute with the waves. And the question is, What gives this revolution such power? You know, we talk about hard power and soft power. William uh, Nye, I think it was. Um, Hard power, the the warriors of this revolution specialize in hard power. That's clear. Many of us have been on the receiving end of some of that. But, But the bit we've neglected, I think, is the revolution's soft power. I can't remember whether I've got a definition up here yes Joseph Nye the political theorist soft power he he coined the term the ability to get what you want using attraction and what we fail very often as Christians to do is we've engaged in the culture wars so called with the hard power but we've, we've not said hang on a minute what makes this revolution so attractive to people And thought about that a bit more and attempted to respond to it. And what I suggest to you is that what makes it attractive to people, amongst many other things, is that it put its finger on our shame. And then it rubbed it in. What do I mean? Hugh Hefner, you remember that name, the entrepreneur who founded Playboy in the 1960s, he said he was inspired to found that magazine, partly as a reaction against his own religious upbringing and its shame-filled culture nature. Another doyen of the revolution, Don Schrader, said to hear religious people talk, you'd think God created the head, the torso, and the legs, and the devil slapped on the genitals. 
They put their finger with those on, on the shame that characterized so much Christian culture. And we were offering the world what the Catholic theologian Christopher West calls the starvation diet on sex. The starvation diet. And whenever it came up, this topic, we could tell you what we're against. Pornography, immorality, single mothers. We knew what we were against, but nobody knew what we were for. That was the problem and still is, isn't it? And in contrast, the stormtroopers of the sexual revolution came along and they offered the fast food diet, the McDonald's of sex. Here it is. Now, how many do you want? Pre-prepared, pre-wrapped, take it away, enjoy. Now, if you're a hungry teenage boy or a hungry teenage girl, what's it going to be? Fast food? Or the starvation diet? And the revolution came along and it, it offered something better than starvation, or so it seemed. And then having declared war on our shame, the revolution rubbed it in, didn't it? Uh, when it came along, we thought it would be business as usual in many ways. You know, in terms of our moral critique of, of our culture, we're used to being um, in the mainstream, the cultural mainstream. Um, and, and so when... Um, Prince Edward stepped down and abdicated because he was married, wanted to marry a divorced woman. We, that, that fitted with our culture that more or less in the mainstream held to Christian values. And we've, we've been part of that. And so we're used to occupying the moral high ground. It wasn't difficult to denounce immorality and pornography and all the rest of it. But then, when the revolution came along, you see, we expected it would be business as usual. We'd be able to portray our opponents as moral anarchists bent on depravity. But in fact, far from unveiling a Dantean nightmare of debauchery, the revolution, sexual revolution, cast an inspirational vision of authenticity, freedom, and fairness. And it showed us pictures of single mums, and it said, that's what you did with your starvation diet and your judgmentalism and your hypocrisy. And what is it about you people? You don't like people who are different, don't you? People who don't fit your straitjacketing your straight-jacketing culture of shame. If they don't fit, they're at the edge. You drive them out while you used to string them up. And Alan Turin, when he nearly saved your life through the work he did in code-breaking in the war, what did you do at the end of it? When he was picked up something that didn't fit your little script, you told him he either goes to prison or he takes the drugs, and he took the drugs and then he died two years later. Thank you very much. And we made a film about it. And it's a great story. And we find ourselves now we're 
the degenerates and the hypocrites and the judgmentalists, the bigots, shame-filled people who love to pour their shame on others. And our culture said to us, you put them to work in the asylums, we call them single mums. And for the first time in centuries, Christians are having to come to term with the reality that today it's we who are viewed as a moral minority. And I tell you, friends, our young people, they find this hard. Because in church, they sense our culture of shame. But then when they go out into secular culture, they're made to feel shame. Because they're Christians who believe this stuff. And when we say to them, so why do you believe, when our coach says, why do you believe that stuff? Because our leaders don't say very much. And I know that's very different because I thank God for David's engagement with these issues. But across the church more widely, they don't have models of people who are confident anymore in the Christian moral vision of sex. And, and again, when our culture questions them, they say, well, I, can, I think I can tell you what we're for. We had a pornography seminar last week again. And we're against that, you see. But they, they say, what are, you, what are you for? I think we got what you're against. They don't know. It's a dangerous place for the human spirit to be. A double jeopardy of shame. Shame inside the church and shame outside the church. And that's why we're losing young people over this. Lots of them. I don't know up here, but certainly in... In the UK, Christian young people struggling. And they'll not tell you with words, but their hearts are shifting. And it's hard to feel immoral. Nobody likes that. And we're in a a virtue-signaling environment. People, we're... Human beings, we're publicly, we're righteous. We like to put our righteousness on display. Paul dealt with that in Romans 2. And so we like to signal our righteousness with, with these you know, cultural signals of inclusion and equality and justice. You're against those things, I hope, here, because if you're not... And, and our young people just don't have a language that... Well, we don't have a language that relates to those moral concerns in our culture. We've got rules. We, we, we've got lists. We've got facts. And, and when our church leaders are flushed out to produce some kind of vision of marriage, say the bishops of the Church of England, what it reads like is more like an update of a software than terms and conditions, than a manifesto for human flourishing. Meanwhile, the the revolution's got great stories. It's got friends and will and grace. And it's, it's got films and narratives and stories. And we've got facts and lists and software upgrade statements about marriage. And we're losing the human heart. And it's shame that's still crippling our response, I suggest. Let me illustrate, in a way, something of this, this, our, our culture's moral inflection. 
um, take its moral vision, its, its language of authenticity, freedom, and fairness. Now, take, for example, a gay pride event. Now, when we see images like this, to us, this is kind of business as usual. We wrinkle our nose. The elephant moves first. And we don't like it. And we say, what's going on here? This is an upheaval. This is an assault on all that God has declared to be good. But what we've got to understand is our culture does not see it like that. It sees this as an expression of authenticity. It's the moral virtue. It's the virtue of being real. It's a culture that's saying, you may not like it, and you may want to to hide in your culture of shame and hypocrisy, but at least we're real about ourselves. At least we're being real. That's presented as a virtue and a, a culture of toleration and freedom. And unless we find a language that connects with that, we're not engaging well with our culture, are we? So here's the challenge. How do we respond to this mighty sexual Revolution that's going on around us. It's, it is not going to go away, my friends. What do we do? What's the way forward? Do you want to come in with any ideas? Let's stop for a minute. And uh, Anybody feeling, feeling good right now? <laughs> I remember somebody said, when I, they put up their hand, I hope what's coming... Next is good because I'm depressed. He said, and I'm a pastor. That's what he said. So I'd love to, does any of this ring true? Some of it not quite rings so true up, up here or around here. I'd love to, any thoughts? It's a free world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Who do we need to explain that to? Yes. Explain it to ourselves, shall we? It's a good place to start, isn't it? You know, we immediately think, how do we explain it to them? And I think that's your... Let's explain it to us, because our young people smell our fear. (laughs) They know that we're not sure what a healthy attitude to sex is, because every time it's mentioned, we lower our voice healthy attitude you know to sex um and 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 they so so it's it's a great point isn't it so how do we how do we how do we engage with this in a a different way a step change almost um yes yeah that would be our starting point wouldn't it really that that how did we? Where, who stole this word inclusion from us? It's our word. Whosoever will may come. It's the gospel. Um, but we understand that word differently, don't we? Um, but 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 we 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 want our churches to be places full of of broken strugglers like us. Any other thoughts? Yes.
Scotland being a little bit more godly than England. Um, <laughs> that's, that's not been true for a decade anyway. I, I think we're probably worse. Yeah. And I think I've the heard. reason that we're worse is having given up our identity as a nation with Christian principles, we've still got the collectivist mentality. So trying to replace it, it means suddenly to be civilized here, to be part of the people who control things. You have to be progressive, you have to be, and it's being really hammered in our schools. Mm. And we don't have um, Christian schools like in England, not, not nearly as many anyway. So I, I suspect it's probably, it's probably even more secularized. I've heard folks say that, yes. Yeah, but can't say. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Yes, Tim. So we need to revisit our foundations, really. In, in a way, I, I think that's why I, I, when David talked to me about coming, I said, I don't want to do transgender because we get drawn very quickly onto the specific issues. Let's pull back a bit and really see the need to, to do that theological foundational spade work. Because people often ask me as a psychiatrist, they say, tell us about transgender. I say, no, you're the theologian. You tell me about what it is to be made in the image of God, male and female, and how we fire people's imagination with that first. Because without that theological foundation, the rest is, you know, it's building on it, but it needs, needs that, doesn't it, Tim? And Yeah. Like kids are being told you can choose your gender yep. from a very early age. We will, I, we will land on transgender a bit more later. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Yeah. Any other? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I think that's a great point. You. You know. We. We. We do adopt or to our elephant, as for those of you here this morning. You know, the, our elephant t- takes a, a an automatic response to sex, which is the disgust mode. You, you know, that's the way he was trained. He's been walking that path, and you're saying maybe we need to adopt a different mindset to this. Another way of looking at it is they are giving a message about human flourishing. They're saying the way to flourish as a human being is to look within and express what you find. 
And that brings virtue because it's being real. It's a virtuous thing to do. It also brings flourishing, well-being. That's the assertion. And, and I think your point is, before we go to criticize that, and there's plenty we can do to criticize whether it does bring flourishing, let's just say, hang on, we do share your goal. You know, we believe in human flourishing. We want people to do well. We don't want to see the little people beaten down. We, we'll take it on the chin what you're telling us some of this. You know, we have been negative. And thank you for that. You, you know that we say to our, the revolution, if it's opened our eyes to some of our negativity, then we should, I think, be, say thank you. But also say, we share your goal. We want to see people flourish. But we want to have a big conversation about what we mean by flourishing and how we get there, because I think you may find we have two different routes. But that gives us common ground, you see. And then you start on common ground rather than starting on opposite sides of the fence. And that's our mistake. We always get on the opposite side straight away. You know. Um, I think in defence of us as well, we've we've tried to. We've been pretty hard over this issue of shame. I, I think in defence, though, we we do need to recognise that being made in the image of God, part of a sense is that sex is to do with something quite sacred. Quite sacred. That that sex is touching on something and marriage quite special to God and sadly we, we're not very good and we haven't been very good at saying what that is and, and developing our doctrine of marriage and our understanding and talking about it but our spirit still senses there's something quite sacred about sex and that's why we just don't want to you know we, we don't want to blunder forth over it we don't want to say the wrong thing we don't want to get this wrong there's something sacred God God cares about sex. So in our defense, part of our unease in this area is because we sense it's sacred, special. But another part of it is just our our shame. So how do we respond? Well, what, what I suggest is, let's move ahead just now, two things. We need a better critique of this revolution. And then... We need to tell a better story of our own. Okay. And I, and I think we've already begun to touch on this. A better critique starts with a better critique of ourselves. Before we go out and change the world, let's look at ourselves first and own our shame and come clean. And it's possible that in the 60s, the sexual revolution spoke truth to our power. We have sometimes been oppressive and judgmental. And we have elevated sexual sins above other sins, like greed. And we have raised our young people in ignorance and shame. And still too many of our young people come into an awareness of their bodies as having been made sexual in the image of God in ignorance. And they don't know why their bodies work like this and why these changes are happening and what they're about and what they're for because we don't tell them. And we do find it hard to be honest about our sexual selves. And so let's respond with humility to this revolution. And when it forces us to face up to some uncomfortable truths about ourselves, let's acknowledge it, say thank you. Take it on the chin. 
And, and where this revolution too showed kindness for the outsider and care and compassion. Let's acknowledge that. A lot of people who care about some of these issues that we find hard, they do it because they want to see the little people do better. They don't like to see oppression. And of course, at, at, at another level, we, we would say that, that our idolatrous, rebellious human spirit wants to overturn the things of God. And that's true. But we're still, even though it's disfigured, made in the image of God, people still want to be kind. And some gay partners looked after their dying partners of AIDS, and they looked after them with a level of compassion and care that would leave many of us ashamed and challenged. We need to recognize where we saw genuine care. Let's recognize it's free. It doesn't cost us anything. We're made in the image of God even where that image is disfigured by sin as it is. And and so that's our first response, a, a better critique of ourselves. But then, extending this a little further, having owned up to our failures and having owned up to how some of our promises we failed to deliver. We said Jesus came to... He, he said he give officers life abundant. Uh, but we don't talk about sex, you see. Let's, uh, we've owned up to that failure of our promise. But having done that, now we're in a better place to turn to the sexual revolution and say, let's look at some of your promises. Have you delivered the freedom, the equality, the fairness that you promised And so our critique of the revolution, I suggest, should be on its terms first, in terms of the promises it made, and and work from within its own offering and say, well, how did that go? And um, that's a a big project. And uh, that would be another kind of seminar at this point. And I've got some wonderful data to show how the sexual revolution promised big and, and delivered small. You know, we, we could look at data just as an illustration. You'd think at least that the sexual revolution would, would deliver more sex, wouldn't you? It's about freedom. It's about taking off the, the, it's about taking off the brakes, the straitjacketing. It's about letting people be free. You'd think that that would at least deliver more sex and yet if you look at the data for 2000 uh, for 1990 2000 2010 it's progressively declining that's frequency of people having sex between aged 16 and 44 the best data you you look at professor spiegelhalter's book called sex by numbers statistician professor of stats at Oxford. He's collated the data and he shows this fall in sexual activity year after year over three decades. And he says, tongue in cheek, he says, goodness me, by the year 2040, no one will be having any sex at all at this rate. I rather think that's probably um, not going to be the case. 
But it is a puzzle, and there's no evidence that the quality of our sex lives is getting any better. Evidenced by the armies of agony ants and shows and advice, and on it goes. Because, you see, like all idols, it offers more and more. We said earlier, but takes more and more. And you have less and less until it has everything. You've got nothing. And that even seems to work for sex itself. We're unhappier. We're having less sex even than we were 30, 40 years ago. And that's just getting started as we begin to examine these promises of flourishing and freedom, equality. Um, It's producing identity confusion, we've argued. It's replaced the shame of childhood that, that we hands up, took part in. It's replaced it with the pornographication of childhood. Is that better? The fast food diet? Um, Last year, the Children's Commissioner, the government-appointed commissioner, um, looked after, uh, you know, who's who's charged with uh, child welfare um, and and oversight of of that area, uh, produced a report on pornography. And do you know what the report was called? It summarized its contents. It was basically, this is the title, Porn is everywhere. And the anger I felt in the commissioner as she was interviewed, she said, look, you can argue about whether 90% or 80% of of boys at age 12 have viewed porn. You can argue around the statistics, but she said, basically, what we need to be getting on with acknowledging is that porn is everywhere. We have pornographied childhood. Now, is this the flourishing that was promised? Really? Really? And of course, while we're on children, perhaps most of all, we we need to ask that, has this very adult revolution delivered kinds of freedoms for adults, but heaped structural injustices on kids, the most vulnerable of all? As the reality emerges that only one half of kids will reach the age of 16 with two parents, biological parents in the home. That's an outrage. Why does it roll off the tongue, the latest statistic, that only two, you know, kids love stability. It's what they thrive on. It's how they build structures of personal development in their own personalities, as we were talking about yesterday, that enables them to trust And to deal with the world as something that's predictable because of the stability that they experienced in their early childhood. And we bring injustice to our kids when we remove that from them. And when our marriages break down, but even worse than marriage is cohabitation. Because what, again, data from the Marriage Foundation shows that if you are born and both your parents are married to one another, the chances of their being split up 10 years later is 25%, and that's pretty bad. But if you get born and they're living apart, 
but then get married after you are born, the chances are 50% that they'll be split up. But if you are born and they never get married, the chances are 75% that they will split up. And the bottom line of this is that the Christian vision of marriage that calls people to honor their commitments for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, is good for kids, friends. They thrive on that because the Christian view of marriage binds men to their responsibilities for the children they bring into the world. And more than that, it builds moral capital in a community, in a society. It creates values in a society as marriage is honored in which we expect our young guys to mature and shoulder responsibilities and want to bring new life into the world and to see the dignity of of seeing another little creation of God grow into his image. And it creates values that our women will enter into these responsibilities and also, as we'll say in a moment, it it challenges to think about singleness and honoring God in our bodies and what that means. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But what I've done is talked about the stuff that I cut out of my slides because we weren't going to have time, but I've put it in anyway. So there you go. Um, so we've owned up to our failures but I think we've got a great opportunity to critique this revolution Uh, not in a way that brings down our opponents we don't want to win arguments we want to win hearts and what our culture needs to see from us is how the gospel brings justice and freedom Equality, And I think we've got some great stories, starting with our kids. Because what it does is, I think of Krish Kandaya's organization, Home for Good. And I think at the work of some of you do here with adopted, fostered kids, isn't that, isn't that, one, isn't that life for the world? Isn't that gospel? It's downstream Work that we do in a fallen world to bring as much grace into this brokenness as we can. But what the Christian moral vision does is upstream work. It builds moral capacity in societies that help prevent kids getting downstream in the first place. And so what we can do is we don't need to get into a battle with government as, as to who should be doing what. We say, please, government, you do all you can for kids. Education, you can, you can do that. But in our communities, we want to set people's imagination alight again of the Christian moral vision and the way it, it brings flourishing and justice for society. We want to learn how to do that. And so, what, having thought about kids... And having thought about moral capital, we're perhaps beginning to find ways of using these words, authenticity, freedom, and fairness, in a way that connects with our culture, but says, but, but we, can we have a conversation about what we mean by these words and how best we develop them in a society? 
got great opportunities here. Not for old guys like me, but for some of you young people to begin to find the language and the confidence again that, that, the, biblical, that the Bible's moral vision is good for us. It's why it's given. So having carried out that critique, we need to tell a better story. You know, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he says um, that we tend to hold a worldview as a story in our, in our imagination, in popular culture. People don't tend to have lists of facts. They tend to hold stories, imaginative stories. And he, he says you, you can't respond to a great story with lists of facts. You've got to tell a, a different story. So what's our story about sex and marriage? What do we tell? What are we for? That's the challenge, isn't it? I'm not sure I've got a great solution right now. I'm kind of working at this. But what, what I want to invite you to do is to begin to work at it too, to tell a better story and then to live a better story and put on display the goods of the gospel in terms of the flourishing it brings to our lives in our church, in the body of Christ. But I, I, I think our story, and I'm going to give you a bit of a skeleton approach, and I think it goes something like this. Our story, as we saw last night, doesn't begin once upon a time. There was me. That's not our story. We think that's an awful beginning to a story. We honestly do. We don't think it brings flourishing, do we? Our story begins once upon a time there was God. And he was not silent. That is a great story. He revealed himself to us in the face of Christ, his son. And then importantly for our agenda, he revealed not simply who he is. He revealed who we are. And he showed us in revealing who we are as purposeful creatures, charged with this calling to bear his image well. He showed us that we flourish when we live in harmony with our design, how we should live well. He said, you flourish when you live in harmony with your design as made in the image of God. And this is rooted in a, in a story that we read together in Matthew 19. Do you remember some Pharisees came along to Jesus as we saw there? And they came to question Jesus about the meaning of marriage. And they reminded Jesus that Moses allowed divorce. And they wanted to know what rules Jesus would apply to regulate divorce. And they were all up for a great conversation and disputation and argument about how Jesus' rules differed from Moses' rules, you see. And Jesus' reply is the key to our story of sex and marriage. He says, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed divorce. But in the beginning, it was not so. Do you notice that? 
He's saying, do you think when you're coming, talking about divorce, that all the tension and the conflict and the heartache and the breakage of relationships and the injustice it, it heaps on kids, do you think that's normal? And that it just needs to be regulated? That we need a few rules to tidy things up? Well, it isn't normal, he says. And this isn't the way God created us to be. Something has gone profoundly wrong. And he points them back to the way God made it. And so to understand the meaning of one flesh union, you need to go back to creation because Jesus went back there. And before sin distorted things, that's the standard, he says. That's the norm. And he reinstates that standard, that norm. He raises, they want him to lower the bar or to juggle the bar around. He raises the bar back to creation. He says, that's the norm. That's where we aim. That's the blueprint by which we live our lives. And the disciples, they they recognized what he was saying. Do you notice their reaction? They thought he's calling married couples to a kind of holy dying here. Um, Until death is due part kind of commitment of faithfulness. And they, 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 they said, if, verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, better not to get married. They got what Jesus was saying. They were so shocked by what Jesus said that they said, well, better not to get married if that's what marriage is then. Count me out. This is dying, Jesus. Dying to self. And Jesus doesn't budge an inch, not an inch. Verse 11, the world may think this is too hard or restrictive or just too unrealistic, but no matter. Jesus, what does he say in verse 11? Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it is given. I'm not budging This is the word. And think about it when you step up to shoulder this great calling of getting married. Because this is what it is. It's a cross that you bear and you commit to for the life of the world. And you better get used to carrying it. And then he turns to the matter of singleness. Do you notice that? He's, maybe he's going to soften up here. He's going to help us out, Jesus. Say something good about being single. And he's equally demanding. Do you notice whether one is unmarried because of physical incapacity, that is eunuchs, or prevented because of circumstances, or whether we embrace the state of singleness voluntarily, of celibacy, He says, it's for the sake of the kingdom of heaven that you do those things. It is a holy dying to self. 
And he looks at a single person and he's really saying, your chastity tells the same story of God's love, of God's image in man. Even as a single person, you're not sexless. Of course you're not. But, but, but you shepherd your sexual desires because you're made in the image of God. And you say, I will love as he loves. And I know that when God loves passionately, he always loves covenantally. And so my most passionate, intimate love, self-giving love, will always be covenantal. And until that time, I hold myself in holy chastity. Not sexless. No, very sexy. I'm using my sex, but my chastity points to the kind of love God has. As surely as a married couple's faithfulness to one another points to the kind of love he has. Faithful, intimate ever he doesn't do one night stands thankfully he's not all over you today and then tomorrow you, he's forgotten neither are we in our loves in our sexuality he doesn't he doesn't have an affair with his secretary and, and he's tired of you now and neither do we and if we're married we're called to that deep commitment in our bodies to bear this loving image, to bear it well. That's our story. It's a tough story. But friends, when we honor this story, it brings life to the world because it, our kids love it. They love it. And, and our marriages, let's, let's not dress this up. It's hard at times. But in the long run, perseverance, keeping promises, it builds moral capital in our communities in all kinds of ways. Because promise keeping becomes infectious. It's the kind of thing we do around here, you see. And so this, this seemingly hard thing actually is a good thing. And that's our story. And until we regain our confidence in that... We'll never begin to be able to engage with this mighty sexual revolution because we've got to speak to it from our own hearts, from our own lives. And, and if we can regain our confidence in this, we, we've got three things we can say. We've, we've, we've got a better story about identity, and we've been talking about that, haven't we? We're, for us, identity, we don't look within, within ourselves. It's not self-constructed. It's not discovered inside. It's been revealed to us. And we believe with all our hearts that we flourish when we live in harmony with that design, that God-given identity. We believe that. It's life for the world. That's why it's given by God. We've got a better story about flourishing the world says you flourish by self-fulfillment. We say, no, no. We've got a profoundly different story to that. We share the goal. We don't want to see people beaten down. We want to see people be more, not less. But we just think you get there by a completely different route. It's not self-fulfillment. Here it is. It's almost blasphemy to say it in today's culture. It's self-denial. Self-denial. That's how we flourish. How do I know that? Jesus said, didn't he? 
Whenever you give more, the world thinks you get less. You get more in God's economy. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom. And all these things are thrown in. Yours as, as well. In the long run. In the long run. And so we've got a good story about, about self-sacrificing for the common good, about the, about the flourishing that comes with being part of a story, as we were saying this morning, that's bigger than me. A story that begins with me, once upon a time there was me, and ends with me, and there will be me. It's profoundly depressing, friends. We've got a better story. We have been taken up into a bigger story of God's love. Now, it's our engagement with our culture has to come from, from a confidence in here, in that. And then finally, we've, we've got a better story about our erotic longing. Whew. About those feelings. That, that zingy pull that we feel. And the story, the, the, the question is, what, what, what of those erotic longings that every one of us has, to greater or lesser degrees? There's always a spectrum of everything, but to greater, we all experience this erotic, this pull, this desire to be intimate, to love, to be with, don't we? What's that about? How does it, how does it connect with heaven, with eternity? Is it kind of incidental, or does it connect in quite an important way? Christopher West, again, the Catholic theologian, tells the story of a priest who goes for a walk, a prayer walk, every night. And that night, a couple um, had stumbled in, into the big garden area where he was because they got very amorous together, too amorous. And they found a spot and started to have sex under a cloudless, a cloudless sky. Stars, beautiful night. And he was admiring the stars and he went round, he stumbled for this couple having sex, the priest, and they were very embarrassed. And he said, no, no please, please. He said, I, I'm, I'm going. The only thing I want to ask you, this question I want to place, is what has what you're doing now, what do you think that's got to do with the stars? Or we might say with heaven with eternity anything because it's sure strong isn't it this, these desires that, that, that we have and the Bible teaches us as we look at the psalmist he says I pant for you Lord my mouth hangs I gape with my mouth for you O Lord, for your commandments, for your laws. The scriptures teach us that, that our, our longings, our, our deepest longings, in the end point us home. They're a homing device for the divine. Put another way, Augustine said, our hearts are restless, Lord, till they find their rest in thee. And we say, well, that can't include our erotic desires. That's all out in a separate compartment. It doesn't really belong in the image of God, that stuff. 
No, no, it belongs right at the center of the image of God because he is a lover. He loves. And what these, what these erotic longings are doing is they, they're, they're saying that written into our bodies is a signpost to the end of human history. And what's the end of human history? It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, isn't it? The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where all human history is going. And that's why our deepest longings for intimacy in the end never get satisfied fully in this world. You get married, you don't get married. That those longings are never completely satisfied because Augustine was right. They find their rest in thee, O Lord. And that's why we get a bit awkward for it. Partly it's shame, but also it's something sacred about these longings. And we need to allow them to point us home. They're a godly thing, a good thing. And you know, there's something more as they point to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When we shepherd these longings in conformity with how we were designed, we put the marriage supper of the Lamb on display in our bodies when we get married, don't we? Paul says, I I take it to mean the two become one flesh, Ephesians 5. I take that to refer, to be referring to Christ and the church. A married couple having sex, I take that to be referring to Christ and the church and his passion for the church. And so what a married couple do who stay faithful to one another is they put on display in their bodies, in their image of God, bodies being restored and refashioned. They put the gospel on display to the world. And, and, and there it is. They point to the marriage supper of the Lamb and they iconize it, preach it. Oh, there's so much we'd say about this. But you say, what about the single person? And as we've already tried to show, the single person too is not asexual. They, they honor this marriage supper in their chastity. You see, see a single person. Put your imagination to work around a married couple and as they, as they put the love of God on display in their simple faithfulness to one another. And then look at a single person. They too put the gospel on display. They say that the love of God, it's always, when it's so intimate like the intimate love of God, it's always covenantal. And so my intimate love will only ever be covenantal. And if it's not to be in this life, how will we be in the next? We shall not be married. What does it say? There'll be no marriage in heaven, Jesus said, didn't he? He didn't quite say that because, of course, there'll be one marriage in heaven, the marriage supper, the lamb. And that's the reality to which their singleness points. We'll all be single one day. As our consummation with God himself is realized the lover of our soul it's not a sexual thing he's, he's not embodied in that sense but this shares all of the, the passion of he shares that for us the passion of our desires he wants us
He wants to bring us home. That's why sex is quite a special thing as well as a shamey thing. Because we do sense in the image of God there's something really sacred about it. It points us home. That's a great story. How we put that into words for the outside is another question. But what I want to suggest is that we put it into words for ourselves first. And that will create a confidence from out of which we then speak. And there's some great opportunities here to be countercultural. Think how we can remake our weddings. Not a staged evangelistic events to talk to the people who aren't Christians with a gospel message that's unconnected to what's happening here. No, this is a holy celebration of the gospel in flesh, enfleshed before our eyes. The couple become one flesh. They show how God loves us, how intimately, passionately, faithfully, covenantally. And we don't need to go to our receptions and ape the world, do we? Really? And, and, and just do what the world does? We've an opportunity to reinvent this in ways that, that's rich and encouraging and do we really need to line the bridesmaids up and some bloke who's the best man tell them how beautiful they look? These are beautiful women made in the image of God himself. And we need to honor their feminine reflection of the glory of God there. All kinds of ways in which we can rethink this gift of marriage and ways that we can rethink the gift of singleness as ways in which with our sexuality we honor the gospel. Now just let me say, and I'm finishing now, um, I, I, I know what I've been talking about is the norm, the average, the ideal. It, it, we, we know that kids do best in stable families on average. But there are lots of families that, that, that are stable where kids don't do so well. There are, that, that, there are lots of stable marriages that hurt kids. And there are lots of atypical marriages that, that are good for kids. And there are single mums that do great job for kids. Of course there are. So the word was, on average, they do better. So if you're a single mum here, or if you're someone who doesn't fit, God's, the gospel says, welcome aboard. Because nobody fits, really. We're all struggling in one way or another here to meet God's ideal. And so what, 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 we, what we build, and here's the opportunity, is we build together a community of, of what I call radical hospitality here in this place. And, and we, we say, and we hold true to this in our hearts we say, here is the blueprint. Look at Jesus' words there. He said, it was not like this from the beginning. This is what we are called to. That's God's blueprint. And that is what we honor and struggle to live by, every one of us. But if you don't fit that blueprint, if you're transgender, or if you're in a same-sex relationship, or if you've a same-sex couple and you've adopted a little disabled lad 
Or if you're a slightly odd family structure where the, the previous wife has stayed in contact with the current wife and you're, you're kind of a threesome now, and that's, that's on, its, on its way, friends, and we just need to be ready. It's already with us in some cases. If you're like that, you see, all of these different forms, we say, here's our blueprint, but please welcome here. Welcome. Because whilst that's our blueprint, there's nobody living up to it in this place. If you come and lift up and look at some of our marriages and what we're called to in our marriages, nobody. And so we want to serve you in this place, regardless of your sexual orientation, your family structure, or whatever your personal journey is. Please let us serve you. Just don't ask us to give up our blueprint. We won't. Because it's our identity. It's what we live for. And it's given us by God. We won't give that up. Never. But please, welcome aboard. Now, you'll, you'll say, yes, but how, how, how does this work? You see, The church has been here before. We've had to sort this out lots of times. When missionaries went to Africa, polygamous, polygamy was the big issue in many places. And the wiser missionaries said, hang on a minute, you can't just dismantle a polygamous structure. We're throwing kids out onto the streets. There are cultural practices embodied here that, that we can't just say, well, now you're a Christian, you, you've got to you know, come, l- abandon your, your family and come out of it. Very complex structures. And the wiser missionaries said, we've got to accommodate in some way to what's going on here. And so, for example, in in parts of Africa, some missions said this, you can be baptized if you're in a polygamous relationship. You can become a Christian and remain in that relationship. But here's the deal. In your baptism and ownership of Jesus as Lord, you look at the blueprint and you subscribe to it with all your heart and you say, this is the Christian view of marriage. And this falls short. It's It's not what... Christ calls us to you can't ever be a leader with us because you're in a polygamous you're not meeting Timothy and Titus's criteria for the elder you see the import where Paul says got to be a husband of one wife Christians have been here before they've had to think through these kinds of issues but, but they said provided you subscribe in this way um, we, we want to welcome you as a brother, but we will never compromise on our blueprint. You can't be a leader. And of course, we're going to have to do some thinking about, and we'll disagree about some of the details of this. But let's think of the opportunities rather than the problems to be a church which shows Christ's openness, his compassion, the true gospel, which is anyone, please, and everyone may come to him. So can I, let's, let's just break just there and, and let's raise some, any questions or comments on where we got to so far. I'll take two or three questions if I might and I'll just stall them up and then I'll, I'll deal with them. Yes. Yeah.
can, and can you help me see what the pro, what's the problem you're seeing, especially there? Yeah. Okay, let's hold that one. Another, another question, another... Anything else? Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, what, okay, let, well, thank you so much for that. And, and of course, there's lots of folk here who could put their hand up and say, hang on a minute, what about me? You, you, you know, and I, I just want to be sensitive to that. And thank you so much for, for, raising, for raising it. Can I just hold that question just a moment? Anything else? No, those two. Navigating this this one first. Navigating the um, the 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 space that's opened up between how we the values that that we honour uh, and that we want our children to follow in and and our secular culture's values. Obviously, it's that's what you're talking about, isn't it? How do we navigate that space well? Um, and you, you know, I, I think David has has as good a take on this as as anybody around here but but i i i think we've 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 got to gently but firmly claim our freedom um to our beliefs to our christian beliefs and our convictions because these are big convictions for us um and and i do think we've got to get in early with our kids when do you start your kids sex education five if you don't start at five, the world will get started at six. You know, the world wants your kids' hearts. It wants their hearts. It wants to shape them in its own image. So you need to get in there before it so that we develop a confidence. And I, I think what one can do with one's kids is say, well, this is the way we see it. This is our identity. This is who we are as a people, as a family. And um, our culture is used to that language. It's used to people saying, this, this is who we are, you see? So this is, who we, this is our identity. But then respectfully to appreciate that other people see things differently. And I, don't, I, I think we'd want to steer our kids from getting involved in the culture wars on a mini scale with the other toddlers and so on, and, and with teachers and so on. But we need to cultivate a quiet confidence in our kids, that this is who we are. And if you're confident in this, they'll smell your confidence. And they don't, they don't need to have all the words, but they'll smell that we, we think we're in a good place here, that we've got life for the world, you see. The problem at the moment is that they smell our fear and our uncertainty. And, and so I, I think the most we can, best thing we can do for our kids is regain our own confidence in, in our vision, sexual moral vision of Christian um, on, on, the, on the divorce well, you may want to come back to me later on that I know it's just a quick thing and I know David could say lots of great things on this um, on, on the, I, I, I'm going to duck it if I might just simply because I want to honour you guys and not talk about you know, a specific um, situation 
Uh, but, but the point is, I, I think that kind of example is um, a kind of example where we, we say, here's the blueprint, okay? Um, but now let's navigate some of this tricky territory. And the mistake we've made in the past is we've said, we want to talk about um, transgender and we want to talk about uh, same-sex issues. But the real issues amongst us are marriage. That, that's the big one. That, that's why I didn't want to get on to transgender before we'd looked at how we develop a much more richer vision of, of marriage amongst ourselves and singleness, chase singleness as both glorifying God. Um, and so um, I, I, I think the Lord would just want to make you feel wonderfully welcome but there's, you know, in any church, obviously. But, but then there's a conversation to be had about what that does mean. You know, and there is a bit of a spectrum amongst Christians as, as to how we treat divorce and so on. And, and I think, however, wherever we land on that spectrum, the Catholics just say there's no, no room. Others say, well, there are certain circumstances. Some say those circumstances are simply the two permitted in Scripture, which is adultery, as Jesus says in that passage, and um, a situation that Paul speaks of where uh, a believer is abandoned by an unbelieving husband. They're, they're the two cases. So Stott, for example, would say they're the only two cases in which we can contemplate divorce. Others would say, well, isn't that a bit... Can't we apply the principle? So you, you need to have the, the conversation. I guess what I'd want to counsel is, don't devour one another over the way we work these things out. The key bit is that we all agree that what Jesus said is our blueprint. That is our standard. And whenever we find ourselves falling short, it's always prefaced, whether it's we've been divorced or whether it's the state of our marriage right now, or whatever it is, we preface where we are with repentance and acknowledge that we've fallen short. You know, so I think that's any other. I want to say just what I was hoping someone ask about transgender. What's wrong with you all? You know, um, I just want to say um, transgender. Um, transgender is is. Um, is essentially a first, as I said earlier, a theological issue. We've, we've got to work out our, our, our anthropology. But I, 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 I believe, and I, I think most Bible-believing, Bible-honoring Christians see in Jesus' words there, linking with creation, that the norm, the creation norm, is that we're created bodily, male and female. And when the scripture talks about being created male and female, it's talking about our bodily differentiation because the very next thing it says is that a man shall leave his father and mother, two sh- mother and two shall become one flesh. So they're, they're being made male and female has what some theologians call a spousal nature. In other words, we come into the world male with an orientation toward having sex with a female. That's our bodily makeup. It's a spousal orientation. So our sex is rooted in our physical differentiation. And there's something glorious about the physical differentiation of a man and a woman, the character, the genetics, the outworking of all that, that as we've been seeing, puts the image of God, is, is, is like God, mystery. But it's male and female, and their bodily differentiation is in some way a mirror to his own character.
Now, that is, that's the blueprint. That's what Jesus says. But of course, we know between the blueprint and where we are, there's the fall. And the fall has produced dissonance, disintegration at lots of levels. We get sick and ill. We die. Um, in very, very rare cases, it's produced something called intersex. And it's a tiny, tiny fraction of a percentage of people. But this is where there is real ambiguity about whether this person's male or female, either genetically or physiologically, hormonally. Real ambiguity, and it's hard to say. Tiny, tiny proportion. Is anyone surprised about that? We get disease of the nervous system. We get disease of the GI system. The offer, we, we, get, yeah, we are a diseased people because of the fall. So why wouldn't it affect our, being, our sexual differentiation? Of course it is. Intersex is there. So you've got this tiny proportion. But then you've got a slightly bigger but still tiny proportion of people who are clearly differentiated. They're a fully oriented male and female. There's nothing physically anomalous. But somehow in, in their heart, they feel they don't fit that particular sex. And that's called gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria means the word dysphoria, phoric, euphoric, you're happy, dysphoric. Dysphoria means it hurts. And the problem is when we've not experienced something, it's very easy to dismiss other people's experience, isn't it? You know? Um, I remember someone telling me, she was very dismissive of, of people with anorexia. Yeah, they just need to... Just, uh, and, and then later on she told me, um, just in conversation, she said, I, I said, where do you go for your holidays, Christian worker? And uh, she said, uh, oh, we, we usually go to France because I, I don't fly. I said, oh, why not? She said, I've got a flying phobia. Hmm, funny. So, so what's different between your flying phobia and this person's anorexia? She can't possibly go on a plane. It makes her feel sick. She starts shaking. It's awful. And, and it helps quite a few. I often use the phobic because lots of people are a bit phobic of something. Think of how you feel and then transfer that feeling into just inhabiting this body. And it just feels hard. And it's really hard. If you're not experienced, you understand. We need to have empathy and compassion. That, that tiny group people. And, and what some people are experimenting with is saying to those people, if it helps, we'll call you in line with what you feel to be the case, not what is the reality. So you're actually a male, but if it helps, we will call you a female. Now, I think you can have a conversation about whether that does help or not. We do know that the rates of mental health problems are much higher in transgender people, people with gender dysphoria. And we could have a conversation. Does that really help to live a kind of a, something that's not real? It's a lie. Um, and we could have a conversation about that. At the end of the day, it's a mystery at the moment. We don't, don't be frightened to say we don't know. We're talking about a tiny percentage of people. Uh, we do know that people who have the operation to change, it's basically a cosmetic operation. They're not really changing sex. It's cosmetics to try and make you look more like the person you feel. We do know that the long-term outcome is very poor. 
that the rates of suicide are dramatically higher still after the operation. So when people say, well, of course, this is where we've got to help people, you could say, what we've got to do, I see why you say that, because you want to help people. You're made in the image of God. You, you care for people. Um, we need to talk some more about whether it really does before we change everything. But I think what we can do is in, instead of folks, so we say there's that problem of gender dysphoria over there. But then in our society, we've got this much bigger problem of gender ideology. And gender ideology takes some of the ideas that people with gender dysphoria have come up with, that maybe my sex is really the way I feel and not in my body, and it says, yes, let's apply that to everybody. You see? So something that is developed to try and help the few, and we don't know it does help, and in fact, there's no evidence at the moment it really helps, although I, we need to have a conversation. It's a mystery, this area. It's what the fall does. It creates mysteries. But, but should we really be taking something that, that may or may not help a minority and without thinking it through, impose it on the majority? That, that's the, that is the real conversation we need to be having. Let, let's, we'll talk about gender dysphoria later. I want to talk about normal boys and girls and whether it helps them to tell them that their sex is in the way they feel. Can we have a conversation about that, please? Because downstream, nobody knows what the end game of this is. And if we can get our tone right, not to win the argument, but to win hearts, if we can get our tone right, there's a lot of people out there who are still made in the image of God, even though it's broken, and they, they sense this isn't right to do this to our kids. It's an injustice. And if we can get our tone right... There's people out there, I think, like, like you were hinting at earlier, who are willing to say, I think you're right. But we can do it by talking about the ideology. Don't get hooked on... on the, if we get drawn into the people with gender dysphoria, it looks as if we're being mean again, like we were to gay people. You know, we, we got, and it lays us open to people saying, what well, you got against people who don't fit? You see, we, we say it's mystery. We, we, but what I want to talk about urgently is how we are coming to impose this whole ideology on all of the majority, because it may or may not help the minority. That is where our heart for kids and the heart for the poor has got to be seen. And that, that is what I'd suggest is a good start in thinking about this tricky area. Um, Vaughan Roberts' transgender book I'd really recommend this um, I, I, I saw it a bit in development it's ever so simple um, very brief um, but it's, it gives a great outline I think and uh, I'd, I'd really point to that as taking this discussion a bit further and as I said there's a number of resources and if I might just by finishing make a, a plug for a book which is surprisingly called Better Story. And that's a surprise. Um, that'll be coming out in January that I've written. I wonder whether you could just pass those around because they're just a little sample from the beginning. But can I just pray before we do that, Tim? Sorry, thank you, and let's just finish. Lord, thank you so much. We, so many words cluttering things up, and we just want to pause before you. Thank you that in, in this muddled, fallen, broken world that 
that we see Jesus and we hear his promise of life for the world. Help us, Lord, to put that, to begin not simply to tell the world, although we want to do that wonderfully. Help us to show them as well what this looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you very much. Um, do you want to just pass those around quite quickly, uh, Tim? And I'll, I'll just can I just take take one there? Thanks a lot. Thank you. Um, can those who are serving, uh, if you don't serve, can you go through? Because we're going to bring the food through I'm here so and bring that through. Uh, we're going to sing for our supper before we do that. So the words will come up on the screen. We'll sing and then I'll just give thanks. God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present aid, and therefore, though the earth gives way, we will not be afraid. Uh, Alistair's going to lead us in singing that, the tune, straight order, or Petersham, right. Let us sing Petersham. We'll stand to sing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the midst of a confused world, we have the clarity of your word. Help us as we seek to work through all these things. And thank you for the provision that you make for us. Bless this food to us and continue to bless our fellowship together in your name.
Amen. Tell me that. <laughs> On you go. Oh no, I want you. Okay. <laughs> oh, you want me. oh no, but I, I need two more helpers to waitress. So if we've got any experienced waitresses, that would be good. But if you've got a steady hand and aren't going to throw it on someone's lap, uh, that would be good. Um, and yeah, can everyone go round tables? And what we're going to do is we are going to waitress service you table by table. There's a choice of beef and pork and a roast dinner. And I'm afraid if you're on a special diet, if you just let us know, but you're going to get yours last. Okay. Sorry. That's All it. right. So if you can sit round the tables, please, that would be good. And two waiters or waitresses.